What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh. I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Time is the thing. Time is the essential piece of interpretation. You cannot start without me. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. You thought I was gone, but guess what? I'm back. So welcome to this addendum mini season of the podcast, which we are doing just a few episodes to celebrate Kate Blanchett's collaboration with Stotfield in Tar, which is coming out very soon. Definitely my most anticipated movie of the year, of course. What other movie would be more anticipated? Um, so we'll be looking in these few episodes at a few films leading up to a discussion of Tar itself. And this week, we are discussing the 2006 film directed by and written by Todd Field, Little Children. And I am so excited to welcome back to the podcast, one of my favorite guests who have been on the podcast a couple of times already. And I have been on his podcast a few times already, um, mm. writer and podcaster and host of and the runner-up is podcast Kevin Jacobson. Hello, Kevin. Ada. Yes, thank you so much. I'm excited to talk about another Kate with you. <laughs> I totally. Oh, yes, that is true. The Kate, and it is Sunday when we're recording this, so it truly is Sundays with Kate. <laughs> Absolutely, this is Kate with a K. Um, right. And listeners of this podcast, we actually have done an episode about Winslet before because we did discuss Ammonite because I right. couldn't not discuss that movie when it, when it came out last year. So you, so you have another episode to listen to if you're interested in Winslet. But Little Children, which is the 2006 movie written by and directed by Todd Field, and he wrote it in collaboration with Tom Perretta, who wrote the novel from which this story is adapted. So before we jump into Little Children, why I wanted to do this mini series, um, our short mini series about Todd Field and about Kate and their collaboration in Tar, is that I just think this is a monumentous collaboration between um, an actor, obviously I love, but also somebody who is really well known for going deep with directors um, to serve a story. And it's always fun to talk when, when an actor that we like collaborates with a new director, especially someone like Todd Field, who is known for just guiding amazing performances. The Oscars are not a metric of everything, but they are certainly some metric. And he made only two movies and he managed to get five Oscar nominations out of those two movies for his actor. So that's a lot. Um, that's at 2.5 a movie. That's a lot. Um, and so someone who, and if you've seen Todd Fields movie, I keep calling him Todd Haynes because we love Todd Haynes. Um, and if, yeah. <laughs> and if you've seen Todd Fields movies, you know that his actors shine and he is also one who always sort of deflects his brilliance and says it's all about the actors. So him working with Kate, I think it's, it's, it's an event. So let's celebrate it 
and talk about him and her and his movies and the other actors who um, worked with him before until we can talk about Tar itself, which neither Kevin or I have seen, although some people have seen it. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the reactions, the raves that we've seen, career best types of talk for Kate. It's incredible. Yeah, it is so amazing. Like this is, we are recording this on Labor Day weekend, which the movie played Venice just a few days ago. It's playing Telluride. Like it played last night. It's playing today. And it's just, every time I turn to Twitter, somebody's just raving about Kate. And of course that's like, you must you be know, in heaven right now. <laughs> I am. It's like Christmas came early. Right. <laughs> um, so Kevin, I when I wanted to do this, you were one of the first people um, I thought of because I like talking to you and I like talking to you about actors in particular. Um, but when I asked you and you were the first person I asked a guest on this mini series. So you had basically your pick of which movie you wanted to talk about. And you said you chose this one. And before we dig in into Todd Field and what makes him special, let me know, can you let the listeners know between the other Todd Fields movies, which is only one other, why why did you choose Little Children? Uh, well, I mean, I would have happily talked about either one of them, to be fair. But personally speaking, I just had a little bit more of a relationship with this movie, having watched it very directly in 2006 i did not watch in the bedroom in 2001 precisely that came later on for me but uh i think this world is uh, you know suburbia looking closer that whole thing is something that i was very invested in when i was younger as a person growing up in suburban connecticut is want to do as uh you know looking closer at uh the pristine picket fences of society and everything um and this is one that really i think nailed that specific tone and that subject matter very well uh i mean this was coming out at a time where desperate housewives was very popular american beauty had won best picture in 1999 so i feel like late 90s early 2000s was very much examining suburban america um, and really just kind of exposing the underbelly of that. And so, you know, this whole world is something that I'm just weirdly fascinated with in general. And I think some stories do it better than others, but that this one does it especially well. And I also am a lifelong lover of Kate Winslet. So it's a, it's a really good combination there. Yes, I, I am also... Um a longtime lover of Kate Winslet, um, the two Kates who came to prominence together. Um, obviously, my my love for the Kate with a C has eclipsed my love for the K with the K, but I love them both. Um, and this movie, I re- also, you know, I remember it coming out and being so completely taken by it and sort of by the performances in it and by the story. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about, and you're right, it is about suburban ennui. It's about what happens um, in American suburbia when the facade is that everything is okay, but then you sort of like expose just a little bit and you find that everybody is just dealing with things and life is not okay, even though, you know, they have all the material things that um, should make life not just palatable, but bearable and should make them content. Um, right. And so so basically this is the story, like if we want to deep 
dive into the film. What is it about? It's about sort of two families in suburbia. One family is Kate Winslet as Sarah Pierce, who is a suburban mother. She's married to a man who's a few years older than her. She has one child, um, a daughter who's um, preschool. So she's, I don't know, three, four, something like that. Um, And she calls her this unknowable stranger or unknowable little person. Um, And she goes to the play. The story is that in the playground, she goes to this playground where these other mothers judge her. She's kind of like not the perfect mother. She's frazzled a little bit. She forgets things. She's not like on top of it, like all the other mothers at the playground who judge her. But there is one sort of stay at home dad. And that's the other family who comes to the playground played by Patrick Wilson. He's married to Jennifer Connelly and he has a young son around the same age. And he brings the son to the playground and the other mothers sort of bet Kate Winslet $5 um, if she would get his phone number because they all love him and think he's like, they call him the prom king and obviously it's Patrick Wilson. So visually he's pleasing and he pleases them and they have all these fantasies about him. So as, um, as a lark, she decides that she would ask for his number, but she actually comes out and tells him that they bet her. And so as to just raise the stakes, she says, what if we hugged? And he says, well, what if we kissed? So they hug and kiss. And I think that the charge that comes from the kiss that started this, this joke, this lark sort of like leads them into an affair. And the story develops from that. And this is one story. So parallel to the story is sort of the story of uh, Jack Earl Hurley, who's a pedophile, who's just been out of prison and he lives in the neighborhood. And the story is that he presents danger to all these little children. And so the film is really a, a satire, a parable about these two different stories. Is the danger, is, is the danger the obvious one of this sex offender who has been convicted of pedophilia and is now out and these little children are running all around? Or is it all the other things that are just below the surface in these two perfect families and these other perfect people in this suburban? I think it's, it's, is it New York? Is it Boston? It's outside a big city. I'm not sure which one. Did you, do you know, Kevin? I don't know specifically. I don't think they even specify it, but it definitely reads as New England in general. So yeah. I definitely got Connecticut vibes, personally speaking, <laughs> just so, from being here. It looks like something I could drive through down the street and see this, you know, family. So, yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you think I captured what this movie is about? Yeah, I think so. And definitely also already really t- discussing the theme there of, you know, the idea that, we have this sex defender who has, you know, these papers all over town that people have plastered over being like, you must avoid this man basically who lives in our town. And yet, you know, really stoking that fear. And yet we have these, you know, suburban well-to-do people who are actually kind of just trying to figure things out for themselves and making a lot of messy, you know, mistakes and the idea of judgment, I think, is something that is very prominent in the film that is not only just in like the text of the theme, but also in the narration, which also has a kind of judgment to it as well. So, yeah. yeah. And actually, uh, 
And so the epilogue sets you immediately because the film starts with these news um, re- news reports about that this sex offender is out. And it and then it moves into the story of like Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson and what happens with them. And then he doesn't appear like you don't actually see Jackie Earl Haley as this character until maybe half the movie is over. So it it's very sort of smart at the beginning. It's like, oh, there is this danger. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then it tell, and then you go into sort of like a different story to see what other dangers are there. Um right. One of the things that I noticed um, that I totally forgot about this movie, because it's been, I've seen it several times since it came out, but it's been maybe a few years since I've last seen it, is the narration. Um, and I know you just mentioned it. So the narrate, the, this film is narrated by this sort of like a car salesman, somebody like you hear in maybe commercials. Um, I kept thinking, you know, how Chris Pine now does these commercials for Mercedes. I kept, it's not Chris Pine, but it's somebody who so, kind of sounds like that. It's very sort Imagine of- Imagine if it was though. it's very sort of even tilted it's like one of those voices that doesn't go up or down at all doesn't show emotion he's just like just just right there and at the beginning i was like oh my god i i forgot about this um and i thought it's it's sort of like fit the story it's not intrusive at all at all it sort of fit the story of like Ooh, let's just treat this as everything is okay. Just and hear this soothing voice in your ears as you are sort of watching this story unfold. What did you think of the narration? Yeah, well, actually, that's something that from reading has definitely been a divisive element. Some people think it's too obtrusive and that we don't need it and that like it it doesn't fit tonally with it. I think personally it does. Um and it's Will Lyman who's doing the narration there. He actually did the PBS series Frontline for a long time. So that does have a kind of, you know, almost like looking in on these lives as if they're like animals almost and sort of grafting certain emotions onto them that these characters aren't expressing themselves because they're very stifled as you are often are in suburbia. Um and so I think it it adds an extra level of a little bit of a satirical edge for me. Just it seems like you're sort of observing animals in a zoo almost. Mm. So that's kind of the effect that I get from that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I sort of like, you know, I liked it. I thought it like completely fit the tone of the film. And it's something that. Yeah. And I, you know, I know voiceover is sort of like. um not controversial, but a lot of people have a problem with it. Like you'd always, um, but sometimes it really works. And this reminded me of like when John Woodward did the voiceover for um, Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. And that was one of sort of like most effective uses of voiceover. And it's reminiscent of this in because it's somebody who's not in the movie. It's not a character in the film who's telling you the story. So it's not anybody's point of view, but it's sort of just a holistic sort of godlike point of view coming from above telling you. Um, with, and, and what I liked about this one is that the tone of it had no judgment at all. And it was sort of like, this is just like, let me, j- as if, as if he's saying just the facts, ma'am, when, you yeah, know, right. When there's so much, um, behind this well it's interesting because from what i've read some people have said that there is a level of judgment in the the tone and sort of like you know stating these things very plainly and 
uh i don't know it's it's people have had all different opinions on the narration and have you know actually grafted their own feelings on what effect it's supposed to have personally it's i don't i don't find it to be like smug necessarily it's just it is kind of evocative and it creates this almost level of dread to me as mm-hmm. as the film especially in the first 45 minutes before we get up to jack earl haley's introduction it's 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 really a mood setter that i think is if if we didn't have that i'd i i would feel it, it it wouldn't feel as it's it's hard to explain it's it, you wouldn't feel as in safe hands i suppose it would just feel very untethered to me just like yeah. watching this like you know satire of suburbia mm-hmm. so i don't know yeah and i wanted to took i haven't read the book of that this is based on but just reading about this film i understand that the book is sort of uh, a more harsh satire and sort of like there are elements that um, Todd Field in his adaptation sort of toned down a little bit. And I feel that this movie is really very toned down like in its in its setup in the way that it sort of unfolds. It unfolds in these sort of like longer scenes. Um, uh, visually, it's very sunlit. Like there is there is it's almost always takes place in the morning because, you know, they take the, the children. Most of it is that they're taking the children to the playground or to the pool. So there's always these scenes that visually the sun is there and it's supposedly beautiful, but it's sometimes really harsh um, when, when it sort of comes in close up. And I, I just like sort of that visual just a position between like sunny, leafy suburbia, but also like look at these people in close up and, uh, and they are, you know, attractive <laughs> movie stars. But I think the way they're sometimes sort of like shot, you just, it's as if field wants you to see something else. Right. Yeah. It's uncomfortably close at times. Um, and I do think that that is an interesting contrast where, you know, some of the most hateful and bigoted and, you know, uncomfortable moments do come just in broad daylight as opposed to darkness where we might expect things like that to be exposed. Yeah. So I always like to sort of highlight a couple of scenes um, that are Mm -hmm. just sort of like tell you a little bit more about the story uh, but let me ask you first is there a scene that sort of you like that you wanted to talk about or you think that sort of captured what the story is about there's a lot of scenes in this that i think are incredibly evocative and have stuck in my mind ever since i saw it um for me i don't know why but this the uh the scene where jack earl haley does enter into the film and he goes to the local pool and pretty much everyone in town is there with their kids. And he just kind of silently walks to the pool with his, you know, flappers there. And uh, just the, the local reaction to that as if, you know, a shark is in the water essentially is just one of these things where for the whole film up to that point, we've been told that this is obviously a a sex offender, someone to watch out for. Mm -hmm. And we would think that, you know, we personally would be like scared for the children because he's also looking around and sort of getting off on all of this. 
Um, but then just the way that there's like this local hysteria and he just kind of is looking around, you yeah. feel a little bit of empathy there that is really not given to these kinds of characters in most films. Yeah. And that's true of the rest of the film too, is where you really get to look into his story and his life and how tragic it is mm-hmm. and how he doesn't need to be the way that he is. And yet he still is that thing in, in many ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's just one of these kind of like contradictory, messy kinds of things that I like how the film doesn't give you easy answers and it doesn't give you easy heroes and villains here. Cause everyone is just so complicated and dealing with their own messy past in a way that that really kind of exemplifies that for me yeah i really love that scene too and it's just like you know if we're talking about sort of like fields visual choices like the flappers he puts on are a very strange sort of addition because he's just in a local pool it's not like he's in the ocean or anything why does he need flappers but it's also sort of like just gives him an otherworldly sort of like monster-like image with these Mm -hmm big black flappers and then the way that scene is shot when when the parents and the people in the pool sort of discover who he is and that he's in their midst it's sort of like it reminded me of jaws a little bit when people yeah. see the the big whale in the um in the ocean and they start running and yell and screaming and all of that it's kind of shot like that and i think that's very intentional that he did it that way um absolutely and then also like i think the camera sort of goes down um into the pool with him and then it shows you like the pool the floor of the pool is cracked i don't know if i'm reading too much of it but the crack in the pool is that the crack in all of suburbia (laughs) yeah (laughs) i like that reading yeah (laughs) look closer as american beauty would say yeah look closer exactly um yeah so i I, that scene it's sort of like it's and it's sort of like in the middle of this it's in this it's the middle of the story it's kind of like a centerpiece scene because it's like a long scene it starts with them just like hanging about you know kate winslet and patrick wilson and their children and then everybody else is like playing and people are playing cards and people are just playing ball in the pool and then he comes and nobody notices him at first and then they notice him so it's a long scene and it's kind of like a centerpiece um seen in the movie playing at all of its um of its um themes and i think it also is a testament to the fact that todd field is more than just an actor's director as maybe some people might have thought in the early 2000s with Mm -hmm. you know he didn't get a directing nomination for in the bedroom despite that being a best picture nominee um i think there's just this kind of feeling that sometimes you have with these kinds of actor focused films that there isn't a style there, but I was really, really blown away on this rewatch at just how much he ramps up the tension on an individual scene level, but also on a film level in that first act to where you really are feeling the emotion on both of both sides of the situation there. You're, you're feeling for him on a certain level and you're kind of understanding why the parents are reacting that way. So. Yeah. 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 It is such a great scene. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, 
the other scene that I wanted to bring up, which which I thought it's a, it's also sort of like a longer scene, and it sort of um, tells us a lot about the themes of the movie. And um, sometimes I I really love that scene, but sometimes I felt like maybe it was hammering it a little too much. So as part of the story, um, Sarah Pierce, who's the Kate Winslet character, has a friend from the neighborhood, an older woman whom she mm-hmm. sort of walks around every day as exercise and talks with. And that older woman is in a book club. And so she invites um, Sarah to become her, um, to join the book club. And the book club is reading what? Guess what? They're reading Madame Bovary. Um, and of course, Madame Bovary is this, you know, um, classic of French literature. It's about a woman who kind of is in suburbia, but it's not, it's a suburbia of like the 18th century. Um, she's in a ruler area, um, married to a doctor, sort of. And so she has sort of like the same privileged trappings of Sarah. Like she's married to someone whom she maybe doesn't love, but he provides and she's like supposedly supposed to be happy. And she starts an affair that leads to her downfall. And so it kind of mirrors the story of Sarah in Little Children. And so they discuss the book. Um, and it's several women um, discussing this book. Some of them are older. And then there is Sarah and um her nemesis who is played by um i can't remember the actress name uh, but there is sarah and there is her nemesis from the playground who's this woman in the playground who's always been like just on sarah's case and so while they were discussing madame bovary this woman the nemesis keeps saying that she's a slut i think she says slut 17 times um, <laughs> in the scene and then Sarah doesn't actually speak until everybody else has spoken. And so she comes in the end and she speaks and she says something like when she was in college, she read this book and she felt about it differently. She thought it was a misogynist text, but now she sort of thinks that Madame Bovary is somebody who was trying to break free uh, from the life and that struggle is what makes her an actual feminist hero and that the text is not misogynist anywhere. So I like this scene. Um, I thought it was great. It's a showcase for, um, for Winslet and all these other small, smaller parts are played by these amazing character actresses. So all of them are very good and the scene really plays. But one of the things I was thinking about, I was like, is, did, do we need to hammer the theme that obviously, or, or is it still fun? What do you think of it? Well, that was one on a rewatch that I did make a note of as being pretty on the nose in general. Like, of course they're reading Madame Bovary and it directly ties in with the themes of exactly what she's going through and completely identifies with that character. Um, but just in general, I will say with with that scene, I do think that is uh, one of the funnier scenes in the whole film, because if you've ever been in a discussion with others about art of any kind, books, film, I feel like there there's always going to be someone who is each of those different characters, um, like Marianne, who is the nemesis that you're talking about, the blonde very judgmental like leader type of the women 
is just being like, I don't know, I found it depressing and is just like completely dismissing it. <laughs> yeah. And over time, she just keeps like, she keeps being like, you know, very judgmental about this central character. And Sarah is offering her interpretation of it. And eventually she's just worn down and she's like, well, maybe I didn't understand it. <laughs> I just, that the way that scene plays out, the, the, when, when there's a description of, um, anal sex as one of the characters says is very funny um yeah but i think just in general i do think that that's not necessarily a scene that is particularly needed outside of you know a great a great scene for kate winslet obviously and is really Mm -hmm. making those lines that could be very forced and very redundant to what the story is actually feel like something that she resonated with and it it, it is a very masters in english lit <laughs> type of uh speech from her but it's authentic to who she is so this scene was so much fun um the despite the sort of like it being on the nose and i especially really loved like you mentioned the woman who brought brings up the anal sex the woman who brings up the anal sex moment so there is a joke there it's a great scene we wouldn't not want to have it but it's still a little bit on the nose um Mm -hmm. and kevin before we move on to sort of like other scenes and i want to talk about the casting because i think this movie is really well cast and what todd field did with that and you know other things about sort of like the time the movie came in in 2006 versus now does it does it work does it not work but before we get there i recently talked with you because I love talking with you in your podcast and the runner-up is about the 1952 Best Actress Race where it was the only time John Crawford and Betty Davis were nominated together two of my favorite actors um and neither of them won but we still had a fantastic conversation so tell our listeners about your podcast and what you have on and the runner-up is this season yes so and the runner-up is we talk about uh, past Oscar races. And what we're doing now is the Best Actress series, which has been super, super fun. And I thank you, Murtada, for coming on to that 1952 episode. And yes, you were lucky enough to be talking about the only time Joan Crawford and Betty Davis actually competed with each other at the Oscars, at least. Um And so basically, we are going all the way through chronologically with every single Best Actress lineup, tackling one year each episode. And right now we are in the 50s and winding down the 50s by the time this episode comes out. And we talk about each nominee. We talk about the winner. We talk about why the losers lost. And then we discuss who we think might have been the runner up, who was just just missing out on that win. Um, and yeah, it's it's just been a really fun thing to chart a lot of these actresses' journeys, their Oscar history, uh, going co- kind of chronologically and seeing the evolution of their careers, especially the ones that keep getting nominated over and over, like Betty Davis, for example. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah, it, it was so much fun to me to talk to you, but also just fun to me to listen to all the other episodes because you have such wonderful guests and the conversation is always, you know, fun and smart and just, and, you know, it, it goes by so quickly. So uh, let our listeners know where they can find the, all these great, great conversations. 
well, the podcast is and the runner up is where you can find pretty much anywhere that there's a podcast platform. Um, and the Twitter is at Oscar runner up where you can find episodes and a whole lot more Oscar discussion and it's Instagram at and the runner up is as well. Yes. So listen to Kevin's podcast. It's one of the best out there. If you love movies. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's go back to our conversation about little children. I want to talk first of all about the casting a little bit, because I think this mm-hmm. movie is perfectly cast with the exception of one performance that I didn't care for, but I think it was still really well cast, even though just that performer did nothing with it. And maybe our listeners can, uh, as we discuss the other actors who are really wonderful, can guess who that performer is. Um, so I think Kate Winslet is sort of like an obvious choice for this, um, at the time, not, not because like, this is like a character that fits her to the T or anything, but just because she, in 2006, 2005, when this movie was made, it was released in 06, but it was made probably into 05. She's just one of the top actors of her generations known for sort of like digging into these emotionally raw women from the very you know from her very first few roles um and so at the point probably she was the top of the list for all casting so that's an obvious casting choice do you agree oh yes definitely the go-to person especially at that specific point in time for her i think she was she was really the only choice for this role especially because as you're saying she does have that reputation of really digging into roles and not always playing like the glamorous leading lady, someone who's really willing to dig in and put in the work. And that's exactly what she did here. I did read that Todd Field discovered her talents when watching um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind mm-hmm. and was just so taken with her work there and her rawness. And again, her willing to willingness to sort of dig into her roles so yeah he apparently according to him she was the only choice too which makes sense yes um and then we have patrick wilson who plays um the prom king and a lot of why patrick wilson works so well in this is sort of a visual thing like he has to look at somebody because the character is this person who is obviously beautiful. In fact, he has a scene where he talks about his beauty and how like beauty is overrated, which is of course something that only a beautiful person would think. Um, right. And so you, you have to you have to have that visual. And you know, you when you want to have a beautiful person, you choose the actor who kind of looks like Paul Newman, the most beautiful mm-hmm. um, American actor maybe of all time. And at that point, um, Patrick Wilson was coming off the HBO miniseries Angels in America, where he played Joe Pitt, and that was a very successful uh, miniseries, and it's probably put him in a lot of casting, um, in a lot of sort of casting lists, and this and The Phantom of the Opera are sort of like the two big movies that he <laughs> made um, right after that. Um, and I think he really is very effective here, and is this his best role and best film? And I don't know that he has mm. matched it since. It's He has sort of like, as somebody who likes him, he has a sort of frustrating career, don't you think? Yeah, I do think this for me is also, I haven't seen everything he's done, but feels like his peak, this plus Angels in America in tandem with each other at this one period in time was like prime Patrick Wilson. 
And now it's just, yeah, the career is a little inconsistent. I mean, he has his Conjuring movies, which he's pretty good in, but not really acting showcases per se. But, you know, here I think, yeah, he is perfectly cast, perfectly cast. And also playing that character with more of a depth than what you might, what another actor might give as sort of like a himbo kind of a role. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, showing someone who has a level of privilege to him just based on how he looks, um, but still has regrets in his life. And he feels like, just like Sarah, that he's gotten to a certain point now and he doesn't know how he got here. And now he's kind of frustrated and lashing out in a way that, you know, a child would. Hence the title. Yeah. I think about Patrick Wilson, I mean, maybe why this movie, which he's really excellent in, hasn't led to sort of like him becoming a star or getting um, movies where he's top build or even TV shows where he's top build, is that even though he's really good and fantastic in this role, he has sort of like a certain blankness in it. Yeah. And it yeah. is like this blankness where you can project a lot of things like he's asked to be that like at the beginning, he's just a sort of stay at home bat who all these women in the playground project all these fantasies in him, onto him. And so the audience is asked to do that too. And he sort of plays that blankness. I can't speak that blankness really well. And sort of when the camera is on him, he doesn't do much, which I think is what is asked of him. And then the audience is supposed, we're supposed to project all these things into him just like the other characters are. And maybe that sort of appealing but blank performance that he gives, which completely suits the movie, is what maybe hasn't led to this movie springboarding him into some into a bigger career. Yeah. That's a fair point. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it in that way, but it it feels to me not necessarily exactly this, but the discussions that we have sometimes about people like Jude Law sort of mm-hmm. being, you know, a character actor trapped in a leading man's body, that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think Jude Law kind of found a way around it, um, even though yeah. maybe his most famous role in Ripley is also about his beauty. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, and so the actor that I really just think does nothing in this is at the time this movie was made was the only Oscar winner. And that's Jennifer Connelly who mm, plays um, Patrick Wilson's um, wife. And so she's supposed to be a contrast between her and Sarah. Sarah is more frazzled. She's more earthy. Maybe she's the movie keeps telling us she's not that beautiful, but she's played by Kate Winslet. And they even say she looks boyish, which which to me, it was the one sort of false note in this whole movie because knowing Kate Winslet from her movies where she sort of has a lot of sensual sex and she's always somebody who's very sexy in her roles. Maybe not as much in this movie um, because of the character, but it was just like when they were trying to sort of present her as this unsexy boyish looking person. I'm just like, well, maybe Sarah is, but I don't know. Knowing Kate Winslet and her history in the movies, that kind of doesn't fit. But anyway, the big thing is that she's supposed to be sort of like the quote unquote unattractive one in comparison with Patrick Wilson's um, wife played by Jennifer Connelly. And Jennifer Connelly, of course, looks the part. She's one of the most beautiful people you know, most beautiful actors ever, you know, she's got that skin, those eyes, that hair, everything. She looks amazing, but I just, and there is the blankness in, in, in um, 
Patrick Wilson, which I thought really worked, but I just was getting nothing out of Jennifer Connelly in this movie. And the role is smaller, even though the movie, if you see its ads and whatever and posters, it's sort of like Kate Winslet and she gets second billing, but it's a much smaller role. She doesn't have much to do, except she just suspects her husband of having an affair with this woman. And then the movie ends for her. Um, that's basically her arc. Um, and she's yeah. supposed to be the breadwinner in the family. There is not much to play. And I don't think she registered to me at all. Did she register for you? Um, well, like you're saying, I don't think that the film and the story really is as interested in her perspective much at all outside of a handful of scenes. Like, obviously, we have the dinner table scene where she invites Sarah over uh, and that proceeds very awkwardly, as you might expect. And that's where she begins to suspect that there is an affair going on. I would say that that was probably her best scene and her best showcase where she's just kind of looking at the both of them and registering that she now knows about this affair without actually saying that, you know, we as an audience are very clear that she's now recognizing that. So I think, you know, that's a good scene for her, but otherwise I would mostly agree that, you know, it's not uh, exactly a, a fine MVP kind of a role. It's yeah. it's fine. It serves its purpose, but it, there's a reason she wasn't nominated anywhere for it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and so the third family in this movie, if we if Sarah mm-hmm. is one family and Patrick Wilson and Jennifer Connelly is another, is Ronnie played by Jack Air Hurley and his mother played by Phyllis Somerville, the wonderful character actress who we lost recently. Um, and they are just so perfectly cast. First of all, it's two first-rate performances. Jackie Earl Haley, who was a, a child actor, and at this point, I think, hasn't acted for a while until he got cast in this movie and was wonderful and got an Oscar nomination. And I think maybe he was one of sort of like, I think, in my opinion, one of the best of that five, a list of five that year. And mm-hmm. um, But, you know, was that the year of Javier Bardem? Or was it not? That was Alan Arkin winning. Oh, for Alan Arkin. Sunshine. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. So, yeah, maybe he was, to me, second after Eddie Murphy. Um, definitely better than Alan Arkin. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is sure. that he, <laughs> he is really good in this part. And it did lead to sort of like a long career that he's still working until today. And, you know, in bit parts here and there and smaller parts and impactful parts, you know, just the journeyman sort of career, it led to definitely more opportunities to him, but also just so perfectly cast with Phyllis Somerville. Like they feel like family. They look like family. Their scenes together are sort of charged with this tension that only comes from, from family where like you love each other, but they're, but you're also kind of understand the foibles of each other and kind of, why you're this way or that way. And I just thought their scenes together were just sort of really wonderful. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that those scenes they have together are really key to why we feel a certain level of emotion and empathy towards the Ronnie character is because of the way that she treats him in a very much a way of like, Obviously, she knows that he's going through a lot of affliction, you know, but at the same time, she's a very loving mother and she'll always love him no matter what. 
and you just you just feel that maternal presence and you feel that she's pushing him to try to help him she she always has his own interest in mind in that case so um yeah i think you know phyllis somerville is honestly i would probably nominate her even though her her role is very limited as well she does so much and her big you know monologue where she talks about how we're all miracles i think Mm -hmm. is another big highlight for me yeah i teared up at that scene um she's she's just so wonderful um and then of course years later recently she reunited with kate winslet in mayor of easttown although she has no scenes with kate winslet in this movie so but she does she plays one of the (laughs) the townspeople in Mayor of Easttown, which I think was the yeah. last role she filmed before she passed away, unfortunately, yeah. sadly. But yeah, she's so wonderful in that scene. Like you mentioned, the one where she talks about the miracles is so wonderful and she's so understated and so impactful. And also she has to play a death scene, which is one of the things that I always like, I don't want to watch somebody dying on screen, but she does play it and she plays it like, it's not like she doesn't actually die on screen, but she sort of like gives you the intention of like, this someone is going to go. Um, and she <laughs> plays that really well too. Yeah. Um, All of those scenes that they have together, her and Jack Earl Haley just have this, this aura of uh, dread to them. Just going back to the dread word um, where you just feel like, these this is not going to end happily and it's just there's a there's a tragedy there's a kind of operatic feeling to that storyline that always really affected me yep um and the connection between the two stories the one character who sort of appears with patrick and kate but also appears with jackie and with phyllis is noah emmerich as this asshole policeman who was fired from the police because he killed someone by mistake and now he makes the fact that this pedophile moved into the neighborhood his sort of raison the existence like the reason he's existing he's just trying to get him uh, to bully him to like um call the police on him he's trying to beat him up and he even leads to sort of like the mom's death um and also another perfect casting no emmerich really can play a good asshole especially oh yeah a big physically imposing asshole who's always sort of like towering above people, other people in, in the cast. Um, it's just perfect casting. Yeah. And also someone who is insecure clearly in, in his own skin. And, you know, we see later on how after they've invited Brad onto the football team and he becomes like the star quarterback, essentially, you know, uh, this guy really starts to feel some resentment towards him. And, you know, we have that scene where he's just like talking to himself outside and just sort of like really getting into a dark headspace, which is what leads to that tragic event happening later on. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, the last person who's also perfectly cast is a one scene person, but the most disturbing scene in the movie, I think is Jane Adams as this sort of, Mm. um, a lonely woman um, who um, has her own sort of um, mental health issues. And she goes on a date with Jackie Earl Haley's Ronnie. And it's a terrible date um, that at the beginning, uh, what I loved about that scene is that these are two people who are dealing with things 
in their psyches um, that maybe has made them pariahs within their families, within their communities. But somehow by putting an ad in the paper, and this is how they come to this day, they maybe find each other and the scene starts really hopeful. You, They seem to be making a connection. They're opening up to each other. Um, she even starts smiling and Jane Addams is perfect in that um, scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, matched, of course, really well by Jackie A. Hurley. But then it ends in a sort of a really the most disturbing scene in the movie. And I, you know, I don't want to describe it, but go watch Little Woman and you, Little Women, go watch Little Children and you will find out what this disturbing scene is, unless you want to tell us, Kevin. <laughs> Well, I don't want to go like, you know, a full description with exactly what happens. But yes, I will agree that it is quite, uh, quite disturbing the the way that that plays out. And also the fact that he says that he knows that she won't necessarily tell people about it is mm. just, you know, adding more shadings to to this character that as much as you want to empathize with him to a certain extent with the way he's been totally cast out and he has this, you know, sweet mm -hmm. relationship with his mother, he still has this other, he's his demons, you know? So, yeah, he's still that pedophile. And I think this is also this, this, the strengths of the narrative, right? Like you said, up until that point in the movie, um, the movie's telling us, Oh, maybe this person, they don't tell us he's been redeemed exactly, but what the movie is trying to tell us is he's human. We all have our human foibles. Maybe we exactly. should have a little bit more compassion and empathy for him and that the danger that these children in this suburban neighborhood, it's not this pedophile, but it's actually all what their parents are going are doing around them and maybe yep. jeopardizing their lives without knowing and maybe we should have more compassion to this and then boom, that scene comes in and you're like, fuck um yeah pretty much <laughs> i know that's exactly how i felt as well yeah um and it just you know shows you the strengths of the script like we talked about you know Todd field and how visually um this movie sort of like plays really well in all those other scenes we discussed how he cast it so well but you know this sort of like build up the way that this narrative of this this character arc is built just to, tells you the strengths of the screenplay like it's such a sort of precise piece of writing right even though it's telling all of these different stories in a way that's almost at at certain points feeling like those those kinds of films like Babel and Magnolia that were coming out around this time of telling all of these different stories concurrently with each other. It all comes together and you feel that, that, that these stories are interacting with each other, even, in, even when they aren't, you know, and speaking to how like you feel a certain empathy towards this guy who is being cast out and maybe isn't as dangerous as you might expect compared to you know what these other parents are doing to their to their own children i think a good example of this is when um sarah comes back home after a, a trip away and the daughter has made a picture for her and sarah just goes into the bathroom and is kind of just like looking at herself in the mirror and completely is ignoring her own daughter who's made this picture of her and even though the, the daughter's like banging on the door wanting to give this gift to her mother you know 
I'm sure this is going to be a, a trauma for this child in the years to come. Um, this sort of neglectful moment in their life together. So, yeah, you know. it's something that's big for the daughter, but right. completely is dismissed by Sarah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of moments like that in this screenplay. I think it's wonderful. What I wanted to ask you, Kevin, is, you know, you, you said mm -hmm. at the beginning at the top of this conversation that you watched this movie in, in cinemas in 2006, when it came out, I did too. Do you think it's still as potent today as it was then? Um, because movies in the end are about the time they come out in in ways, right? Right. And I think there are elements of this film, just from watching it again, that felt very post 9-11, I will say. You know, mm -hmm. there's like references to Homeland Security and, you know, this, this boy that Kathy, Jennifer Connelly's character is interviewing for a documentary is talking about his father that died in the Iraq war. Uh, there's kind of like that post 9-11 paranoia and like the watchdog groups and everything. Yeah. So I think to a certain extent, it feels very set in that very specific moment in time. Mm -hmm. But I do think just emotionally speaking, in some ways, it feels like we've only grown more um, into the types of emotions and feelings of what these characters are going through in this film is just that feeling of isolation and projecting a certain image to people when that's not how we are in the private. You know, I think honestly, the themes feel even more potent to me mm -hmm. to this day. So what yeah. about you? I'm glad you brought up isolation because I think it's a different kind of isolation for us now, right? Like yeah. isolation yeah. these days is coming from these diseases and the pandemic, the, all these diseases that are that we thought were eradicated are coming back again. And you're like, you're afraid to go out. You're afraid to be around people. Um, you know, you know, when you're in close quarters and in, in a train or a bus or whatever, all these feelings are going around you, which is kind of what these characters are. Although theirs is not, the same sort of isolation or fear they're having, but it is also existential fear. Like I think in both right. for us now and for these characters in the early aughts. Right. And it's the, the paranoia I think is also something that definitely has continued. And this fear that, you know, fear of catching diseases, you know, these days has mm -hmm. never been more potent than, than now. So yeah, it's sadly still, still resonant. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunately. Um, I wanted to talk um about the ending of the film. So they have this affair, um, which is starts really hot. And the first sex scene you have to watch because um you see Patrick Wilson's backside and it's a side to be seen. Um <laughs> Not to be crude, but the classic laundry room sex scene. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it starts really hot and then the guilt seeps in, the judgment from other people sort of like um, starts to nick at it a little bit. Um, the fact that maybe Jennifer Connelly finds out she doesn't say anything, but she knows. And so all of these things chip at it. But at the same time, they're still in the haze of it. So that they decide to run away together. Um, and kind of how that is, it transpires, I think is, um, I don't know if it's from the book or this is something that Todd Field came up with, but it's kind of, to me, was like um, 
really effective in that these characters, they sort of like make a point to meet and then neither of them for circumstances uh, makes it to that meeting where they're supposed to run away together. Um, Finally, Sarah, played by Kate Winslet, actually runs into Jackie or Hurley after his mother has died. And sort of like he's bleeding and all of that. And he, of course, he is the pedophile. She's at the playground, so she's afraid, but then she's maybe trying to help him. Um, so she never and and Patrick Wilson meets those younger men, teenagers who he's always been watching throughout and sort of like, because he's somebody whose peak was really at high school where he was, you know, an athlete and beautiful and all of that. And he's always looking at these younger skaters and wants to join them or is jealous of them or is envious of them. And then he's going to meet Sarah to supposedly run away with her to start this new life together. And the skaters ask him to join them. And he decides that, yeah, this is about the time that I should actually spend some time skating with you here. And of course he falls and he, um, he goes into a little bit of a coma, wakes up. And the first thing he asks for is his wife completely forgetting about Sarah. So basically both of them kind of forget about each other and this life they have planned in this moment of heat. And Mm -hmm. I thought that sort of like tells us a lot about these characters and that they're just not serious people about anything, even about this affair. Right. I mean, they're they're little children, <laughs> literally, yes. just like about about this whole affair. They're just kind of like going off mostly on a whim, I would say, just from feeling the emotions of this experience. And once in a way, they're both kind of like dealt a sense of reality in, in these moments where she has that interaction on the playground and her daughter runs off and just the sort of this the trauma of that really just kicks in what her priorities are and how much she actually does care for her daughter, even though at times it doesn't feel that way while watching the film. And then for him, it's just like, you know, he's just kind of following whatever suits his fancy at this point. He's just indulging in all these different things. And now this thing happens, he gets knocked on his head, literally, and he gets like the sense knocked into him in a way. So they're both realizing what their priorities should be be and they're kind of maturing in both of those moments simultaneously of course because it's a movie but still (laughs) yeah so this is like a whimper of an ending frankly because it's just like Mm. we set up all these things to happen and then or and nothing happens but it fits the story the story of suburban ennui the story of you know these people who are not really great at anything like she's not a great mother he's not a great football player they're not really they don't really love each other. So I think it fits the story. But do you yeah. think that it sort of like leaves the audience a little sort of like, what was that? Or um, what do you yeah, think, Kevin? Uh, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's certainly a, a finality with the Ronnie storyline, obviously. But in terms of Sarah and Brad, yeah, you kind of do you you want to you want maybe an extra scene there maybe between the two of them mm-hmm. uh where where they can acknowledge something um but yeah i think there is kind of the implication that their both families are just going to be sort of reset and restored to a certain extent to the kind of you know nuclear family suburbia thing 
Um, so on, on that level, some people could be like, you know, the Marianne character in the book club being like, well, that was depressing <laughs> and just like yes. not really getting much out of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I could see that, but for me, it, it still works and is in keeping with the film as, as you said. And I do also like the sudden cheery Baroque kind of, um, end credits theme. Yes. Um, and the sound is just usually the sound sort of like, I mean, it's not a movie that is sonically in your face or like that you hear a lot, but there is sort of like eerie silences that really makes this movie really kind of just gets under your skin. Like even in the scenes in the sub suburbia, they're in the playground. You hardly ever hear like birds or chirps or like just the sounds of nature is just the sound of these people and maybe whatever um whatever is happening right around them so that it feels realistic but it's also is just like what is going on why are the sound why are there not enough sounds yeah it's very eerie i would say and then when you kick in with the narration on top of that it's really it it really is a great tone piece i would say yeah absolutely i don't know if we talked too much about just dialogue wise how i think this film really uh, pops like um, when they have their chat, uh, Sarah and Brad, their first chat, and he's talking about how his wife makes documentaries, and she's like, like Michael Moore, <laughs> and he's like, like PBS, <laughs> yes, and, uh, like PBS, yeah. It's it's such a funny line, and I think this is the other thing is that people when they think of Todd Field and sort of like these serious sort of dramas about people in distress and dying and pedophiles right. and all of that, they yeah. we don't sort of think that there is some sharp humor in this in these movies yes it's very very dark humor that i i i particularly jive with so even beyond the comedic lines dialogue wise like when um richie's not richie ronnie's mother is um talking to noah emmerich's character larry and is referencing this other thing that he did in his past mm-hmm. where he shot a he shot a young black teen in a mall uh saying something like that poor child at the mall what you did to him and how that really just sort of unravels that uh i just love how much the film is exploring how everyone has these demons in their past right yeah and yet you have to decide whether you're going to be just tied to that or if you're going to try to tell a different story which is what the ending uh narration says is the idea that like the future would be a different story and it has to start somewhere you know yeah Uh, yeah and i agree with you sort of like the movie is like just from the dialogue and the writing and the sort of like the um sort of like the literal sense of like the words that are spoken is dense and like some of the dialogue really makes you think about the themes and about what is happening. And of course, aided by these wonderful actors who just like are able to deliver it. Um, Mm -hmm. So Kevin, we talked about Kate Winslet in Little Children and you said that she's somebody that you like. So tell our listeners a little bit of why you like Kate and her work. Well, with Kate Winslet, I think, like a lot of people, I definitely first saw her in Titanic, you know, would watch Sense and Sensibility a little bit later, but 
just found this actress who is quite striking at the same time feeling like she has this earthy and just this down-to-earth quality about her that I just found relatable in certain characters and fascinating in other characters. She just always has such a perceptibility, I think, and just an, an intuition about what a character needs and is able to really shapeshift into all these different types of characters. I mean, it's kind of surface level, but I always love <laughs> the fact that she really does nail an American accent despite being British. Yes. Like she's just, just growing up, she always felt so distinctly American to me, even though yeah. I knew that she was British. She felt like she kind of tapped, in, tapped into a certain type of American woman. Um, so, yeah, I was always fascinated with her. And as someone who loved the Oscars from a very early age, she was a constant presence around this time and yeah. was really in movies that I personally found really investing even more so than what other actresses projects were, were at that time. So yeah, I've, I've always loved her and I'm very happy that she's had kind of a second wind here with mayor of East town. Mm-hmm. Um, very excited to see what this phase of Kate and her career is. Yeah. I, I have loved her too. And like I said, at the top of this conversation, um, I always sort of like um, enjoyed her work and I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned Mayor of Easton because I think for a little bit, none of her work was connecting. Um, but I yeah. think Mayor of Easton was such a high peak and a high point, And she was so wonderful in that. Maybe it's all coming back. And it's sort of like when I think about the two Kates, like I think where they differ is that Winslet to me has always been a warmer presence on screen, a more earthy presence. Um, And I think the actress she reminds me the most of, not because of like Oscars and awards and everything, but is Meryl Streep. And I think maybe Mm. when you mentioned sort of like her being able to play American women of different ages and different um, experiences, that's kind of maybe what, why I think of, think of her as Meryl Streep. I think they have this, they have that, that they both do that, but they also do it in this way that is warm on screen, that sort of connects, that has such empathy for the characters. They always play conflicted people, but there is just a layer of empathy and sympathy be- below whatever the c- conflict these characters are dealing with is. And that sort of makes her a unique presence on screen. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> and in 2006, she got her fifth, was it fifth? fifth Oscar nomination, right? And she had yet not to win, which is funny when people get to like four or five, people start talking about they're overdue. But I think unfortunately for her and little children, this was the year that Helen Mirren was the queen. So there was just no way, yeah. <laughs> no way Kate Winslet yeah. was going to win. <laughs> I think Helen Mirren won about every single award that year, like literally everything, including critics. Yes, totally. And I think, you know, that also reminds me of Kate because Helen Mirren has had that dominance and nobody else had that dominance until Kate and Blue Jasmine, which is basically you, you win the big three critics and you win all the regional critics and you win all the other awards and then you win all the SAGs and Golden Globes and then the Oscar, everything goes to one person. Which just tells you, like, Kate Winslet had no chance, but she still got the nomination. She got the nomination because 
of Todd Field, but also because of her own reputation as an Academy magnet. And she wins the next time she gets nominated. Right. Right. And I was even thinking about how this role, I don't think, is the kind of role that would get the actress nominated in a lot of other actresses' hands. I don't think of it as a particularly awards-friendly type of role, even though she does get a lot to play, obviously. It's it's a, it's very interesting that she gets this nomination. I mean, I love it, obviously. It's just, does it strike you as a little bit atypical? Because that's how I, I felt, too. Yeah, I mean, it's not a sympathetic character, but it's not an outright... Yeah but it's not an outright villain. And those are the two sort of like easiest things. If you're, if you're a victim or if you are like the big bad, it's very easy right. to get nominated, but everything in between, especially somebody who's morally ambiguous or more like we talked sometimes morally ambiguous, but sometimes maybe morally reprehensible, like somebody right. who's literally asking the audience, this character is asking the audience to judge her and she's judged by the other characters in the movie. So yeah, those characters sometimes don't strike the court with, with award voters. Yeah. So it's a, it's a credit to her. I think that, I think she was definitely helped by her reputation. As you were saying, she was just an awards magnet in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, this is one of my favorite nominations for her. Yeah. Um, and it's just the year was so wonderful. Like Penelope Cruz is wonderful in Volvere. Um, Helen Mirren wouldn't get my vote, but she's still great in The Queen. Meryl was in The Devil Wears Prada. Amazing performance. One of her best. But, you know, my vote and people who listen to this podcast know it's without a doubt Judy Dench in Notes Judy, on a Scan. Yes. <laughs> Ugh, I love that performance. Yeah, Barbara Covet. That's just, that's the performance that should have won the Oscar. And so sometimes, you know, they all come in a few months or, and they have to compete against each other, unfortunately. Yeah, that is an unimpeachable best actress lineup. Yeah, one of the best ever. Little Children, I have to say of those movies sort of like maybe faded a little bit from the cultural consciousness. Like people still talk about Prada. Obviously they talk about, or at least everybody I know talks about Notes on a Scandal. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and the queen is still like because the royal family is always in the news and the writer is doing the crown so there's they all have some cultural capital that maybe little children for a while didn't have especially because top field went away but i think it's coming back so i'm excited for people to either rediscover it or discover it again now that we're all going to be talking about him at least this fall because of tar is coming out right yeah, I think this will definitely give people the opportunity to catch up on his work. Luckily, there's only two movies to catch up on, but still. Yeah, so so the time investment is not huge at all. <laughs> so I think, Kevin, we are both kind of like this movie a lot mm-hmm. and recommend it. Do you agree? I definitely would, but I also think it's important to go in with an open mind and uh, to not expect these characters to be perfectly moral, as we do see sometimes when we look at Twitter and there's a certain morality test with mm-hmm. these uh, with certain films, you know, you can certainly look at it and just dismiss it out of hand for being like this film is kind of like asking you to empathize with characters that you don't feel comfortable em- empathizing with, particularly mm-hmm. Ronnie. Yeah, but Again, I think it's in keeping with the film that it's sort of asking you to see the humanity in everybody, even the people that you deem monsters. 
and mm-hmm. see that there are no heroes and villains. It's just everyone's messy and trying to figure shit out, you know, at yeah. the end of the day. Totally. And I think you, you're right on the nails with that in that the characters in this movie sort of run the gamut from morally, from morally reprehensible to morally questionable at best. Right. <laughs> um, totally. And the movie, its strengths lies in that it doesn't judge them. And it sort of like just presents the story and sort of like leaves the judgment to us as the audience. And I think that's sort of like what's exciting me. I mean, I'm trying not to read about Tar, except that Kate is great and Todd made a great movie. I'm trying not to read too much. But what's exciting me about that is I think that's where Lydia Tar will also, from what I tried not to read, will also sit. Yes. And I don't know how much you know or don't know, so I won't add anything on that. <laughs> but um, yes, I agree. I think he definitely specializes in these kinds of morally complicated dynamics. Same thing within the bedroom, too. So, yeah, which is what excited. It's exciting. And I and there is sort of like a literalness in cultural criticism these days in people sometimes yep. will you know, we'll, we'll judge a movie by how the characters behave or how and judge the filmmakers by that when that's not really what we should be doing. Not, although, you know, I don't want to sit on a, on, you know, a pulpit and say, you shouldn't be doing that as cultural criticism. That's not what I'm trying to say, Yeah, but it's just like, there is a little bit of like just literal taking of a lot of things. And that's not what Todd Field does, which is what makes Tar exciting and I think it will lead to a lot of conversations. I hope some of them would be great and fun. And I'm sure you and I will have some of those conversations together and with other people. Um, but it's exciting to sort of like have a filmmaker um, deal with with hot topics, deal with things that we are living with and sort of tell us um, or not tell us anything, but make us think about them and have a conversation about them. Yeah, I agree. And also uh, how wild it is that Little Children is his last movie. Yes. <laughs> the fact that it's been this many years since a Todd Field film. I'm curious to see what he, I don't know if he's going to make any kind of social commentary necessarily, um, but just like how he handles characters living in the 2020s, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh- I mean, somebody who had such a perceptive touch to what people were dealing with in 2006, I don't think you, I don't think he would lose that. Let's hope he he hasn't lost it. But he yeah. is so perceptive in this story and sort of like the way that he made it and the way that he sort of shot it and framed it and everything. There is, there is a sure hand at play. And so I'm hoping he hasn't lost it. And even though... You know, when, you know, I read like this New York Times thing um, that they just did about him, which doesn't talk a lot about Tar, so I was able to read it. But basically what he's been doing since then is that he has been involved in a lot of projects that just never actually came out. Like he wrote a lot of things, something with Joan Didion um, and something Mm. else based on a Jonathan Franzen book. There was, you know, the... Cormac McCarthy adaptation. So he, these are some pretty big projects that, so he's at least been writing. So, so the instrument has been in use. Yes. (laughs) I have faith in our friend Todd. Yes, absolutely. And it's just 
absolute excitement about Tar. And, you know, Tar comes out soon. So go watch Little Children, watch his other movies. He used to be an actor before he became a writer, director. You know, you could watch some of those movies too in preparation until Tar comes to your neck of the woods. (laughs) I was just going to say, I completely agree. And I highly recommend watching both In the Bedroom and Little Children. Yes. Kevin, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. I, as usual, love our conversations and enjoyed this as much as all our other conversations. Um, Yes. Thank you so much for giving me this chance to, again, rewatch Little Children. And I do always love talking movies and talking actresses with you, Murtada. So thank you. Of course. So Kevin, thank you so much for coming on Sundays with Kate. And until... um, We talk again, and I'm sure we will very soon. Let our listeners know where they can find you and your work. Yes. Well, you can find me at Kevin underscore Jacobson. That's S-E-N, not S-O-N at the end. Um, And yeah, find me at And The Runner Up Is on any podcast platform of your choosing. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and listen to it at Sundays with Kate or at sundayswithkate.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, thank you for listening.